Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. This episode of the podcast was recorded at the Australian Shareholders Association Sydney Conference. So if you hear people chattering or maybe even a bell or some plates and cutlery, you know what it is. It's a bit of background noise. Try to tune that out. We've done our best with editing. Hopefully one day you'll see us on the road in a city near you. Keep your eyes peeled on the RAS Media website for any updates for events that we'll be hosting in the back half of the year. But in the meantime, you can enjoy this episode and know that it was done in real life. Thanks for listening. Andrew Page, welcome back to the show. Owen, thanks for having me. Mate, it's always a pleasure. I was telling the guys yesterday how excited I was to chat to you today. Oh, me too, man. It's always it's been a too long. Yeah, it has. It actually has been too long. Yeah. So Time goes by so quickly. Yeah. So people that don't know who Andrew is, Andrew is, Andrew is the founder of uh, strawman.com. Uh, Australia's premier investment club. You've read the briefing. Yes, nice. I have. And um, Andrew and I previously worked together. I did. Um, he started Strawman at a very similar time. Yes. To when I started Rask. So we're in the trenches together for a very long time. Yeah. Shared a few miseries. Yes. Um, but mate, can you just maybe for people that haven't heard of Strawman so far, like we've yep. got a lo- lot of new listeners to the podcast over the last couple of years. Yep. Tell us what it is and why people join. Yeah. I mean- it's easy with an online business to get caught up in a lot of um, tech terms because they sound good. So I'd love to tell you it's sort of it's a platform, you mm. know, it's it's a it's a social um, uh, tool. But it, it, at its heart, it's really just an investment club, and they've been around for ages. So you get around the kitchen table with your friends, you go meet at a coffee shop or a bar, and you talk stocks. Yep. And the idea being is that you would share ideas, challenge each other's thoughts maybe get some new insights, but then go off and do your own thing. And I think a lot of people will find this. It's, it's, um, it's hard to do that in person mm. when people are spread out so thinly across the country. Um, and there just really wasn't many good online options. So we're, just, we're simply an investment club. We give people sample portfolios that they can build. Um, it hopefully is a bit of practice, a bit of paper trading, um, so to speak. But it's also there to sort of signal to others in the community, what stocks do I like? How much of them do I hold? How have I gone over time? 
And we can aggregate all of that together and sort of say, well, look, as a community, here are the most widely held stocks. Mm. And we also encourage people to share valuations, research on that as well. That's peer reviewed. People can vote on that. And the idea is, is that we can just draw out of that things that are trending, things that are popular. Again, not as a recommendation. Mm-hmm. Let me make that clear. Um, but as a starting point, and I think one of the big challenges that we have as investors, there's 2,000 plus stocks. Mm. Everyone knows Telstra, BHP and, and all that, but there's some really great stuff at the small end, but it's much harder to find. So that's all it is. All care, no responsibility. <laughs> We're here to sort of connect you with other engaged investors. We charge a pretty significant price for it as well, very intentionally, because we want to keep the scale small but also because it, it, it's a wonderful self-selection mechanism as well. You only get the very, very serious investors. And yeah, so far doing pretty well. Yeah, I, um, the one thing that people can do, whether they're a paid member or a free member, is they can look at uh, the Strawman Index. Oh, yes. Um, which is shown on the, the homepage of strawman.com and it shows like our performance since 2017. Yes. And that basically is like, as you might say, the hive mind, the collective wisdom of the, the community. Yes. Um, the list of companies goes into that index. Yes. And it compares, I can't remember the, the benchmark. That uh, ISX 300. ISX yep. 300. Yep. And um, there were times where it's, we'll talk about the volatility in a minute, but there were times where it shot away from the benchmark and come back Insanely down. Insanely good at one point. Yeah. Now yeah. the last year hasn't been great, but yeah, we're still outperforming the market since inception. I, I often think about this because we've seen um, some like community-based indices created in the past for Australian stocks and some of them haven't performed so well. Yes. And I often think, myself about straw man like what makes it so good mm. uh, i tend to think that it's a result of the the quality of the research which goes in to the like how people join and if they're allowed to join when they join what they have to do to earn rewards yes and to get recognized and ultimately all of that quality focus on the member yes lends itself to better quality research which drives the stocks up 100%. or like the in the in, indice um, it, so- it sounds a little bit elitist, doesn't it? But it, it's, it's not really. It's the, the trouble is the hive mind is only as good as the hive. Yeah. And so this is a problem with a lot of the free sort of platforms that are out there. You've got everyone coming in and giving their two cents worth, whether it's well supported mm. uh, or not. And there's no accountability. So we really try to build accountability into the platform. It's not about making people, some people feel great and others feel terrible about themselves. It's just a matter of sort of saying, Look, if you want to share your thoughts, we want to share your thoughts. We want to challenge those thoughts, not to get into arguments, but to refine our thinking to get to get better outcomes. But but at the end of the day, you know, it's only going to be as good as the quality that's put into it. And and, and when you only focus on those that are very serious investors, DIY investors, self-directed investors, um, you just you just get a higher caliber. Yeah. And and that's what it's all about. You um Groucho Marx has this saying, you know, I wouldn't want to be a member of a club that would have me. And it's always stuck out really well. That's you know, so I don't know. When you're first building a business, you want it to be bigger than Ben Hur. Wouldn't it be great? We'll have a hundred thousand members and you know, yeah. to the moon kind of thing. But we, we quickly realized that actually care for what you wish for there, because you extract it out far enough, you just get the market average almost by definition. Um so yeah, less is more. Mm. And if I'm not mistaken, that index actually has quite a tilt to smaller caps as well. So with our sample portfolios, you can buy anything listed on the ASX. We never set out to go that direction, but the community very much evolved towards small caps. And I think it's because there's a couple of reasons. The first one being is that they're very undercovered. 
If you want research on an ASX 100 company, they're everywhere. They're always written in the AFR and various publications. You will get a view on that. These ones are so much under the radar that really there's not a lot of other places you can go to find some intelligent commentary on these things. So I think people gravitated towards um, it for that. And also, frankly, small caps are definitely more risky. Um, but within all of that, and a lot of rubbish in there too, let's be Absolutely, real. Absolutely, yeah. But within all of that, there are some absolute sort of gems. And almost by definition, smaller companies have bigger growth potential. They tend to be much easier to understand, the smaller, the smaller operations. Mm. We tend to have the ability to speak with any CEO that we want to. In fact, we, we do weekly CEO meetings that, that members nominate. And you just get that level of access, you get that level of clarity, you get that big growth opportunity. And it's just, it's a very exciting space. And it's not, it's one that you can bring to bear very rational, buffetesque kind of approaches, even though they may be smaller and more volatile. And it's, yeah, it's worked out pretty well. Um, I, I love it because it, it does cover the companies that I personally, I want to be learning about pretty early in their journey yeah uh and a lot of the other like places where you can go to learn are typically we've seen some instances recently in the news where there's a lot of hype around them and people posting you know if they hold a company they have really done no research they just want to talk about it so it creates a buzz and all those types of things um the last couple of years has been very volatile, in particular the last 18 months, I'd say. Isn't it funny? We only use the word volatile when things are going down. Yeah. We, we don't use the term volatility on the way up. No, no, no. But COVID, you're right. COVID yeah, was great on the way up. Yeah, yeah true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so what have been some of the kind of the lessons learned from this period? And maybe just to add context uh, where this question comes from, I've spoken to a lot of what I would categorize as maybe really talented analysts or private investors who are maybe newer. Yep. Um, that have become a little bit disenfranchised by higher inflation, higher rates over the past few years. And so I'm angling for like what's happened in the community, how's it been faring, and maybe I guess the lessons that you've taken by being through this before. Yes, there is a lot of lessons to be had. I think one of the more dangerous scenarios for a new investor is to start investing into a bull market because you very quickly start to learn that you're a genius no matter what you do. Yeah. And wow, if I made 30% on my little pile of money over here, maybe I should throw much more money over here and continue to do that. Look how easy this is. Yeah. And it leads very much to a pride before fall moment. The best time really to invest counterintuitively is very tough times. You know, battle hardens you. Mm. It shows you it's not easy. It shows you that, that um, uh, it shows you the advantage of, of, of being confident when when others are fearful. Um, so what did we learn? I think I think we learned a couple of things. There is always a disconnect between what the business is doing and what the shares are doing. And we had a lot of really great businesses that, that were popular within the community. But at the same time, the shares just got silly. It's more obvious in hindsight than it was at the time. But Buffett says you pay a, a high price for a cheery consensus. Mm. And I think one of the lessons that I've, this isn't a new lesson, this is a lesson I've had to relearn and probably will need to relearn again in the future, is that you can actually do pretty badly or pretty poorly, even if you pick the right company. Valuation matters. And that's easy to say. I think it's pretty obvious. But at the same time, there is nothing more difficult than sitting on the sidelines when everyone else is having a great party, 
easy money and you're the old curmudgeon saying, oh, it's a little bit too pricey or this doesn't make sense. And, you know, that FOMO element is so potent. And that was just reiterated to me very strongly, I think. The other thing I would add to that is that it is also these times that represent the best opportunity in the sense that there's a lot of stuff that deserve to fall just ridiculous valuations and frankly just zombie companies as Chris Chris Joe was talking about earlier at yep. the event but the babies always get thrown out with the bathwater and it sucks to watch them sort of go down but I try and remind myself that as a long-term investor and who's hopefully still got decades to go well, this is exactly what I should be hoping for mm. I've now we all say it right like oh, if the share market, if the shares fall a little bit I'm going to back up the truck and then it does and then we don't um, so there's another reminder to sort of say, actually, look at this for what it is. It's not risk. It's not volatility. Sure, it is those things, but it's opportunity. Mm. Yeah, a lot of people, uh, at least accumulators, we're here at the ASA event, and uh, there's a lot of people that are in retirement mode and some accumulators, of course. Uh, but it's a it's an interesting uh, dichotomy between those two because... If you're in that situation, you probably see volatility and downward prices as a major risk. Yes. Threat to your portfolio and well. If you have to sell your shares to get the cash to live on, absolutely. Yeah. Whereas if you're an accumulator and you're kind of a shrewd investor who's pulled on to these things. Yes. You should actually be hoping for lower prices because the implied yield. Let it fall, baby. Yeah. 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 How easy is that to say? Yeah, absolutely. It's hard when it happens. It is. Yeah. When you see... Um, not to single you out, but I saw your straw man profile this morning before uh, coming to record here, mate. And uh, I did see the twelve-month figures were down, were negative. So they were, they were, I think they're down thirty-something percent. Oh, really? Like, yeah, it's okay. compounded at an average rate of thirteen percent since twenty seventeen. But the last year's been brutal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, this is a point in time when we take that number too. So I imagine yeah. twelve months ago. Oh, maybe even 12 months from now, yep. it's a different number. It, it may be, but I'm not going to cherry pick it. I, I made the point when I did the intro for the conference here today that I don't care who you are. You're going to have these periods of underperformance. I've been doing this more than 20 years. It's not, not my first rodeo. I've, I've suffered through this before. Yep. And um, definitely mistakes were made. Genuine mistakes were poor investment pieces. They weren't mistakes of timing because I just never get that right. Mm. I think you learn that you don't need to get that that kind of right but uh yeah it is what it is i mean the regrets that you you tend to have i tend to have anyway and not so much the losses that have been made it's the not swinging hard enough when the opportunities yeah. sort of come and just being able to be consistent when you look at that trailing 12 months and go gosh what a shocker it's very easy to capitulate very easy to throw in the towel but just watching the berkshire meeting on the on the weekend um What's Charlie and, and Warren's big secret? Consistency and endurance, yeah. you know? And I just, again, I'm not saying anything world-breaking here, but but it's true and it's good to have that reminder. Mm. How much, this is a really technical question and I don't expect a technical answer, Andrew, but um, how much of your return in small caps, I guess, do you think is through multiple expansion or valuation expansion, sentiment changes versus a fundamental growth? Oh, such a good question. It, it, um, valuation is a big part of it on the way up yep. and on the way down. So there are some companies that just did so incredibly well for me. And I bought them because I thought they were good businesses that the earnings would grow and grow pretty well. Small cap growth time. I thought, I thought they would do that. Well, they did. 
What I didn't factor in was things like price to sales ratios going from two to 20. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's a 10X return, just, just you know, that, that aspect alone. And as I said, things got a bit crazy. And I think the pendulum's swinging the other way now. Now you've got some really incredible companies there with these, these I'm using price to sales, which is very blunt measure, by yeah, the way, sure. but sometimes you have to when they're pre-earnings yeah. companies. Um, yeah, it's, it's actually compressed right down. So you've got to kind of get both right as an investor. Um, you, you can, as I said, you can do really badly investing in a great company. A company could grow 20% from now until kingdom come, but if it's on a price to sales of $4 million, just to pick a stupid example, I'm probably not going to do well at that. So I think that's what's changed. I mean, I think that's what's interesting. A lot of the companies I've got in my portfolio, I'm, honestly, I'm not upset with. They've, the business has done more or less what I thought and hoped that they would do and are continuing to do it. And the future that I envisaged seems to be playing out more or less. Never does exactly, but it's sort of directionally kind of correct. The only difference between now and a couple of years ago is that the, the market is so down on these, that the, 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 the multiples are so so ridiculously lower. So it's a better risk adjusted return. Same company, much better return potential now. Mm. And, and by the way, I, I should be careful. To, that doesn't mean I'm saying, oh, that things are going to turn and it won't oh, get no, lower no. from here. It's just objectively, all else being equal, it's much better at a lower multiple. What do you, like, I know we're just speaking general terms here. What would be your average holding period of a smaller company? Yeah, um, uh, I've not worked it out, but it would be years. It would be in years. Years yeah, and right. years. There's, there's really only three reasons I ever sell. One is just it's clearly the thesis is broken. And that might be if the share price is up from where I bought it or down. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. I bought for this reason. My reasoning was wrong. If I stay invested, that's just hope at that point. And hope is not an investment strategy, no, no. As, I'm, as I'm fond of saying. So if that that's a clear and decisive sell. You just got to be honest with yourself, which is the tricky part there. Did I get it wrong? Mm. Um, the other time is if there's an opportunity cost consideration. I'm a big believer in diversification, obviously, but I really think for for most of us, it just gets silly beyond about 20 stocks. Yeah. Your 20 stocks, you've only got on average 5% allocation to each. One of them could go to zero and you've still got 95% of your portfolio. You, you get most of the benefits of diversification within that first 15 to 20 stocks. Beyond that, you just get this situation where you are so diluted and everything that, that yes, you're very much protected against the downside, but you're also chasing multi-baggers, hopefully. Mm. What point is it if you've got 100 stocks and one of them goes up 10x? Do the maths. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything. Um, so, so sometimes you'll sell something not because you've changed your mind or it's not great anymore. It's just that something objectively better has come along. And you've got a, you've got a team on the field. You've got some players on the bench. Yeah. Some of the ones on the field are tired. I'm going to sub them off with someone fresh, better, and, and, and so that's another reason to sell. And then the final one is just because I need the money to do something with it. Buy a car or a new dishwasher or whatever it happens to be, right? <laughs> yeah. Outside of that, why would you sell? So you want to talk about the biggest regrets in my life are selling things at insanely good returns. I mean, I'll give you a hundred examples, but things where I, I um, Prometicus is one I yeah, like to talk about, right? Yep. Because I bought it at 83 cents, which makes me sound like a genius because it's mm. 65 bucks today. It's, it's, it's literally an 80x return. Um, but, but what did I do? I was clever and I locked in profits. The old saying is you never go broke taking a profit. Yeah, 
but you never get the long-term compounding multi-baggers either. Mm. And so I, I, the best returns happen when a business really starts to gain traction, really starts to compound its returns. It was sitting there under the radar. And as it's doing this, it gets more and more attention. And that's when you get these, these gains that are just incredible. You've got to be patient. But, but they, are, they are the ones to keep hold and to cling to for dear life as well, you mm. know. Um, and also I'm a bit lazy. So the whole, for me, the, the thing that first drew me into shares was that, I, wait a sec, I give my money to someone, I get to own part of this business, I'm not going into their office every day, I'm not digging the holes or answering the phones, they're doing it for me. So if I own a great business and there are people out there working hard every day to enrich me, let them do it, right? Mm. And if I'm going to be changing horses every five seconds, it just it's just very counterproductive, very costly, and the rest of it. So it's a very long-winded answer, mate. But I like I like to hold for as long as the return potential looks attractive and the company remains on track. Mm. And that could be 20 years. Mm, I like it. Um, I also think that uh, the, the the I guess those two questions in sequence. Where where I was thinking is. A lot of the studies show that fundamentally companies perform better over five to 10 years. Um, like that's when the fundamentals really kick in. Yes. So you need that longer holding period. Yeah. Of course, you get your afterpays and small businesses that can shoot the lights out. Fundamentally, sure. like profit, revenue, all those things. Yes. But typically what we find statistically anyway is that in the short to medium term, it actually is sentiment and valuation and expansion that drives a lot of share price performance. Yep. And I, I see that particularly so with small caps where yeah. you have... People that are more active, like you and I both know Claude. Claude's yeah. much more active than I am as an investor, yeah, for same example. Here. And um, it works for him, I think, because in small cap land, uh, he can be more active because of that that stretching and sure. that c- contraction in valuations. Yep. Um, whereas, say, for someone that's investing in Telstra and that, the volatility isn't there because and, – and you don't see that stretch in the valuations yep. as much. As much, yep. Uh, and that's, so that's that was kind of the genesis of that question. But mm. – there is a, a couple other things which I want to touch base with you on. We've never, you and I, I've heard you talk about it elsewhere and mm-hmm. I've seen it on Twitter, uh, alongside your, um, I guess, I guess concerns about the rental situation in Australia, <laughs> shall we say, and property Very prices. delicately put. Yes. I love it. Um, but the other thing that's new to me and to our conversation here today is um, – your fascination and your interest in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. <laughs> so I'm hoping maybe can you lay out the as succinctly as you can the thesis around this and just like your general thinking. Yeah. Oh, you want me to do this quickly? Yeah. It's very I mean, hard. It's I a big say, topic. Let's, I just let's say let's give the, us the, yeah, the cliff notes. The, the very. The, I just want to say right at the beginning here is that um, this is a very polarizing topic. You mm. tend to put people off straight away, or you tend to preach to the to the converted, yep. and and it, it doesn't tend to be a very intellectually rigorous conversation. People make up their minds very quickly. We chatted years ago about it, and yeah. I was telling you I was the biggest Ponzi of all time. What? It, <laughs> and this is around 2017 when we had that big bubble. Yep. And then it all came down and was like totally vindicated, right? Like what a, what a nonsense. Well, guess what? It didn't go away. And I was like, okay, I'll usually, one of the things you notice with bubbles and Ponzi's is that when they are discovered, that's it. Yeah. Bernie Madoff didn't come back and start all over again. It's dumb. The, 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 the jig is up. Um, well, this one didn't happen. Let me clarify as well. There's Bitcoin and then there's shit coins. They're just totally different things. And that's, that is a meme, but there is a lot of good reason for that. 
So the Cliff Notes. Okay. And I've got to be careful because I just I just tend to put a lot of our, our members and stuff off because a lot of them don't like it. So you do you. I've got nothing to shill here. He's got no buy-in as to whatever anyone Absolutely. does. Absolutely. And this know. is only, I'd imagine, a very small part of your portfolio and, sure. and less of your interest is this and more is small caps and, and companies. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, mean, I, as I'm, I'm, I try to pride myself on being an independent thinker and I try to pride myself on looking at the other side of the argument and taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. So about a year and a half ago, I did this with Bitcoin because this damn thing wasn't going away. So I was like, right, let's, let's dig into it a little bit so I can finally put it to bed and get on with my life. And the trouble is, is the more I dug into it, the more I found I was orange pilling myself. You know, right. I, I got more and more convinced of it. And it's very easy to get into technicals and cryptography and computer science and economics and history and the rest of it. But I think, I think the, an elegant way of describing it is that we now have a way to transmit value in the same way that we transmit information. So the internet obviously is a big deal. It just meant that anyone, anywhere, through an open protocol, without any permission, I don't need anyone say so, I can get online and I can communicate with anyone else on the planet. It's huge. Um, with computers, of course, you can replicate anything a gazillion times for, for no marginal cost, right? Mm -hmm. So what Bitcoin is, is, is genuine digital scarcity. In fact, it's probably one of the most scarce things in the universe. And when you understand that the fundamental truth of that statement, it's not some wild-eyed, laser-eyed, you know, uh, person on Twitter saying it, it is like, and I, we don't have time to get into it, but it, but it genuinely is that, and that I can access it without anyone say so. I've got an asset here that has no counterparty risk. Think about the assets that you've got invested in now that has no counterparty, like literally no counterparty risk. It is it, without an issuer. Mm -hmm. It is a bearer <laughs> instrument. It settles very quickly. It transfers at the speed of light. So it's got all these incredible properties. And over the last 14 years, this thing has just ticked over flawlessly. It's got the world's greatest bug bounty on it. Because if you can crack this thing, you're literally going to make billions of dollars, right? It never happened. Kind of can't happen. It's not, I wouldn't say never, never, but I mean, again, dig into it. It's, it's, you start getting these really profound statements that holy crap, that's true. I can actually make these kinds of statements. And so you get, to this, you get to this point where it's sort of like, this is a big deal. Now, like all technologies, it doesn't matter how good they are. They need to be adopted. And the other angle to it as well is that when people just look at the price, the exchange rate of this thing, but when you look at any of the metrics that kind of would suggest, would, would, would give you some indication of that adoption, whether it's be the number of wallets, the number of transactions, the hash rate on the network, any of these things, bottom left, top right, in a J. You know, it's like, okay. And the other thing you got to realize too is that it doesn't have to be, it's not an all or nothing thing. I think some people like to think, well, every, all fiat money is going to zero tomorrow and we're all going to go to a Bitcoin standard. Well, we live in a world right now where there's hundreds of currencies. We have no problem with multiple currencies. If I gave you a $20 Kiwi note right now, I don't think you would want it. Why? Because it's very difficult to spend here. Does the Kiwi dollar have no value? No, it doesn't. It just happens to be in a certain jurisdiction where the value is held. But even then I can take it and I can swap it and I can, I, I, I can do things. Well, we now have a native currency for the internet, for the digital realm. 
that's pretty powerful. And I can, again, I, there's no borders. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And so the thesis is very simple. Um, we've got a once in a civilization kind of technology, genuine digital scarcity. The best use case for that tends to be is a monetary asset. And I now have something that is faster, safer, more secure, more trustworthy than anything that's ever existed before. And if only 10,000 people in the world accept that, that's fine. I've got a, I've got a community of 10,000 people, but that is it's actually millions now. And it will be continue to be more in the future. So as long as adoption grows, as long as the network continues to operate, it's almost certain to have a great deal of value. I've only got two more questions for you. One of them is a question related to this, which is um, what do you think of the Ethereum blockchain? It seems to be more it's efficient. It's a scam. Do you think so? Yeah, it's a complete scam. I mean, the, the Ethereum has changed its code on a bunch of occasions because it can be changed because there are people that control it. That's fine. But it's a software enterprise. It's it, it's it's a um, it's a security. It's not a commodity. It's got some cool stuff that you can do. But here's the other thing: blockchain is the worst technology in the world for efficiency. It's ridiculously inefficient by design, right? So to put to do something on an on a Ethereum blockchain that I can do much faster, cheaper, and better on an AWS web server just makes no sense. This project's been going for years. Show me one use case. The, the use case has been, let's create a bunch of altcoins that we can sell to, to a dumb public. That's what it does. Now, you try and change the code of Bitcoin. You can't. No one can. No one owns it. The SE, uh, Gary Gensler, the head of the SEC, has said, Bitcoin's a commodity. Everything else is a security. Now, why would I invest in a token that is controlled by a handful of people where the consensus mechanism is based on the more coins you have, the more say you have. Sounds very similar to certain systems we've got at the moment that don't work well. <laughs> you remember, mate, that when the internet came along, every company put .com on the end of its name and everyone tried to like get a bit of halo effect from that. Well, someone just invented something phenomenal and everyone realized that actually it's open source software. I can just fork it, put my own name on it, put a picture of a dog or a rocket or something on it, and I can sell this to a whole bunch of people. And we found out last year, the hard way, just how much grift and scam there is. And Ethereum's probably one of the bigger ones that's out there. Sorry to all the ETH heads. I know I'm going to get some angry letters there. Yeah, but so it's it is, going to be a zero is what you're saying. I, look, I don't know if it's going to be a zero, but I know if I'm going to be, I want to own something that, again, has no counterparty risk. Yeah. And that has massive counterparty risk. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, maybe a zero is a bit, uh, a bit harsh for me. But oh, that's yeah, I think ultimately, ultimately, like it could take a long time. Yep. Yeah, I, I think it could actually be something that's used as a backbone for all of the CBDCs and stuff. They'll find a use case for it in that sense. But in terms of the market opportunity and potential of it, it's, it's, it's chalk and cheese. And this is why there is that meme, Bitcoin, not crypto. Yep. They are fundamentally different. Mm, you know? Fair enough. The other thing that uh, one extra buzzword I'll throw at you before we uh, wrap it up here. Um, now, just before, actually, before we get to this question, um, people they have to join a waitlist to join Strawman to get access to the small cap and company research. Uh, so, if you are interested, I know a lot of my listeners um, and listeners of the other RAS podcasts are really 
uh, passionate about straw man. Oh, we've got a wait list. Yeah, yeah. sign up. Yeah. yeah. And so go ahead and, and sign up. There'll be a link in the show notes to get a free account and join the wait list. Um, there may be an opening. I have the inside scoop. Maybe an opening later this year. Yes. So. We do it about twice a year. Yeah. Um, so once you get your membership, don't give it up. It's basically the, the, the thing. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, great. So the, the question is, um, do you think artificial intelligence will replace a lot of stock picking? Yeah, I, I think it will. You reckon I, it will? Well, well, actually, I, I think it's one of, the, speaking of the internet, it's one of those technologies that's just so broad in its ap- applicability. Um, so I think it disrupts everything. I mean, not tomorrow, but the genie's out of the bottle now. I think I think uh, equity analysts to lawyers <laughs> to everything will will be impacted. I, I I think it's not that a robot will take your job, or a computer will take your job, or an AI will take your job. A human using an AI will take your job. And what it's shown is that I can be me, but just ten times, hundred times more efficient because I've got an army of servants who don't sleep or think or get angry at, at my command. So for example, in your job, Owen, you might go, I'm a kind of investor. I like good quality companies. They've proven there's some commercialization, there's traction with sales. I'm making putting stuff in your, yeah, in for your sure, yeah. words in your mouth here. Now in the in the in the good old days, you, know, you had to sort of do a lot of reading, right? You can do scans and that, but they're hard because they're just their their ratios. When we really sort of have it's particularly sort of uh, um, uh, subjective um, uh, attributes that you're looking for, like management quality and all this. It's just a lot of reading. So now I can spin up any number of servants, ones that I've specifically trained on ASX data on any particular uh, annual reports that I want to do, and just say, um, Chavis, why don't you get for me uh, companies that are between 10 and $20 million? I just spit out my shopping list. Okay, here you go. Now, was that possible before? Yeah, it just took a long time. And fund management teams would have armies of people to sort of do that. Now I can do it automatically. I'm still going to be the human that makes the decision. I don't know, maybe 50 years out, maybe that changes too. But but for the foreseeable future, I'm still there. I can just outsource so much of this stuff. Um, will AI be in charge of actual buy-sell decisions? I'm sure some hedge funds will set something up and allocate a portion of capital. But for the main, I think it's more of a story of um, uh, uh, it being a tool that people can use to vastly enhance their productivity, which means that they can, and by the way, it doesn't give no one a particular edge because we're all using it, but it is going to mean that there's going to be a lot less jobs in our industry, I, I, I think, and, and for a lot of industries. Mm. That's fair. Yeah, I'm I mean, not, not a great outlook. No, no, no. Like yeah. uh, I remember listening to David Gardner, who I know you know from the Motley Fool yeah. co-founder. Um, used to have this saying that everything that he invests in, you can't see on a balance sheet. Yes. You can't see in the data. And love that. I think we should maybe distinguish between quantitative analysis and quantitative investing in AI, which is the key thing. Like you said, the qualitative. Yeah, the AI is the qualitative. That's where the, the game has changed. Yep. Whereas we've always had quant engines, just like Jim Simons in the 1980s. Yep. So that's a frontier which is quite interesting. Really. It's still a lot of asymmetry, I would say, in small caps yep. in Australia in particular. So for small cap investors, I think that is still that kind of whitewater is still a fair way out. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting though? And so we, as I say, we do a lot of CEO interviews and 
<laughs> lately, I mean, they know which way the wind is blowing, right? So For they sure. know what investors want to hear, and investors want to hear AI at the moment. So Absolutely. everyone's dropping it in. What I was um, under the under a false impression for a long time was that, well, if, how are you as a small twenty million dollar ASX company competing with the likes of Google and OpenAI? Like you can't possibly do all this stuff and be anywhere near as good as these guys. And then it dawned on me, it's like actually they're not doing any of that. They're taking the tool by those guys and they're applying it to themselves. It's like, well, no, our tech team just just plugs it in. It's virtually an API. We don't have to know how large language models work. We can just use it. Yeah. And and when you see this speed of integration on this, like, wow, this is a this is a big deal. So I think for the small caps that I'm most interested in, it's the ones that have proprietary data sets. Yeah. Because that is just right up AI's alley, right? Mm. So uh, Pointera might be a good example. No, it's down in the dumps at the moment, but huge. I mean, terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data that a machine is just like, you know, eat for lunch. Uh, whether it's um, uh, EnviroSuite, collecting environmental monitoring data and this kind of stuff. And they, it will, or Ava Risk Group does security detection. They, they have all of these data sets that they can train the AI on to improve, they're, still, they're just capturing the data. That's going to be a commodity. And if data capture, okay, anyone can do more or less do mm. that. Drawing intelligence out of that data, that's the game changer. And these companies that have the data and will be able to gain that increased intelligence, I think that's the one way you can get a bit of a head start on your competitors who likewise can use the the, the tools. They just don't they just don't have the training mm. sets to, to leverage. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Mate, this heaps of fun recording at the ASA event here in Sydney. Uh, people can find you on Twitter. Is it still Sage underscore Simeon? Oh, God, I've got to change the name. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes. Okay, I come be- and go in terms of my Twitter activity, <laughs> but uh, yeah, check me out there. Yeah, find him there. You're still hosting your podcast with Scott? I am. We still with Triple M Motley for Money. Yep. We do that twice a week. Yep. And so uh, one with Baby Giants, got Matt Joss and Claude Walker. Yep. So there links to all of those in the show notes, mate. Really appreciate you taking the time to join me. Mate, I, I could go all day. And, and, and thank you for humoring me with Bitcoin. <laughs> That's great, mate. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.